Good morning. Once again, it's my honor, it's my blessing to welcome you to Hartwood and most profoundly to this uh, Hartwood Temple. I've had the great privilege of being a part of this for almost 34 years, and uh, yes. This morning, we're exploring one of the foundations of energy as medicine. We'll be exploring both our understanding of energy and then we'll be practicing using uh, this great mystery of energy um, as a form of medicine. Uh, first of all, we want to dabble in ultimate truth. And the truth is that nobody really knows what anything is. Sage, saint, philosopher, scientist, nobody really knows what anything is, what we're really made out of, what we, where we've come from, or, or where we're going. You hear that? Nobody really, really knows. It's a great and wondrous mystery that anything is or that we are. And whether we say, I don't know, or God made, God made everything, we're pointing to the fact of this mystery that everything is, but we really don't know where it came from or what it's really about. But if somehow we go on communing with this mystery, loving this mystery in its manifest form, searching for the understanding for this mystery, uh, calling out to this mystery, uh, we can find happiness. Uh, That though we don't quite... It's beyond our comprehension on many levels. Uh, There are some very profound ways in which we can commune with it and in which we can uh, experience it. I like to begin with a foundation. uh, And in that foundation, remember that our our Western worldview, the worldview that we take for granted, is very much tied to the uh, biblical traditions. And the biblical religions were religions of conquerors that were imposed upon a conquered people. People were converted by the sword. Um, And it was, these biblical religions were designed to uh, destroy what had given people power, their gods, their way of life, the spirits, the relationship to nature, the earth, their inner resources. You know, for a millennium, there were inquisitions. For a millennium, they, they uh, burned the libraries. Uh, they tortured and murdered the priests and priestesses. They persecuted anyone who might have any knowledge of nature, uh, any, any sort of knowledge. The church has always been uh, draconian and ruthless in its pursuit and you have to realize that church and, and, and school, church and university, the church held the university in its iron grip. So you under, understand that even our model of sciences is deeply uh, shaped by Western history and Western history's relationship to the church and the, the draconian, draconian, the paranoid control that the church uh, exerted uh, over uh, knowledge. So today we want to look at another worldview in which God did not create the world, God became the world. In which we throw away this pie in the sky concept of God 
for a God that is eminent everywhere and every flower and every tree and every cloud and every rock and every person that is before you. It is amazing that we live in this incredible miracle. Look at these people. Look how deep and beautiful and magnificent each one of you is. And we've been told, you know, that you're somehow fallen, that you're somehow. And that we should, you know, it's called the theodicy of suffering, that we should somehow wait for uh, some heavenly realm and accept the suffering of the earth rather than rebel. So we're part of a huge shift in consciousness, a huge awakening that's going on on this earth to a realization of the sacredness and unity of life. So what we're going to be contemplating this morning is this creation, this infinite, infinite creation as a living, breathing, conscious being. And this has always been the key to arcane re- research. This, this simple mm-hmm. saying, as above, so below. That in exactly the same mysterious and miraculous way that you are, this infinite, infinite universe is a living, breathing, conscious being. And that you, it's, a, it's, a, it's an infinity of wholeness. It's a holearchy. And that you are a microcosm of it. And everything that you are, it is. It is alive. It is conscious. It is creating. Now, this sounds terribly, terribly abstract. Um, now, when I talk about creation as, a, a, as something of creative intelligence, I'm talking about something very, very simple. That every atom is a is a feedback loop that manifests the homeostasis of its atom nature and then uh, adapts to its environment. It learns. So this fundamental cycle of homeostasis that's going on in every atom and every molecule and every cell and every natural process is what we mean by creative intelligence. When I think of... and So do you hear that? That every atom, every molecule, every cell... Every vector of physiology, every vector of anatomy um, is what we call um, uh, uh, is, is, it, its nature is to create homeostasis. And it's learning. It's learning from its environment and self-correcting. So one of the beautiful things about this is you can say this is the essence of intelligence. The ability to take in our experience and learn from that experience. And the beautiful thing about this is every atom is free. So I'm talking about uh, a God that lives in every atom of this creation, whose nature is to learn, to expand, to grow, and whose, whose nature is freedom, whose nature is to be free to create its homeostasis in, in relationship to everything around them. And, and so when I look at this, amazing, amazing nature and the amazing majesty and splendor of nature. Um, I'm respecting that every atom and every molecule has been creating its world. You know, that, the, that intelligent design is something that's happening on a molecular, a molecular uh, level in every moment. In any case, here we are 
And we are um, going to be uh, focusing this morning on mantra yoga. And our basic premise is that uh, we live in this ocean, ocean of life. Uh, Many years ago, I was with my teacher in India, and we were visiting a cousin of hers. Um, And she said, you must meet my neighbor. And she introduced me to this tiny, tiny woman who just radiated more love than anyone I'd ever met. And so I globbed onto her. I wouldn't let her go. And, uh, and it turned out this woman had been a physicist and that she had been the dean of her college. And now the master of the ashram had passed on. And now she was mistress of the ashram. She uh, looked over the ritual and looked over the cooking. And we sat in the garden and I asked her this question, you know, how can I see God in everything and everyone? Okay, a question that we've all asked, you know, how can, how can we see God in everyone and everything? And she explained that God is the life in everything. You know, we take life so for granted, you know, it seems so simple. But as I've contemplated this over the years, and then she said, without God, there would be no life. So for her, uh, this life is sacred. This life is sacred. In the... Um, Stop this now. Okay, good. Oh. I'll do it this way. Are you going to stay? Good. In the wisdom of uh, ancient India, uh, all life is sacred. It's a much different paradigm than the one that we have in the West because as I started off saying, God does not create the world, God has become the world. So all life is sacred, uh, that we live in this this ocean of life and that we're very much a microcosm of that ocean. So the question is, how do we cultivate this knowledge? How do we we, um, uh, commune with this knowledge? Uh, Because in this understanding, the uh, purpose of knowledge um, is not to get a better job um, or not even like in European philosophy, the love of learning. Uh, the purpose of this knowledge is the alleviation of suffering. But in this understanding, um, now that Sanskrit word dukkha, uh, suffering, um, you know, we usually think of it in terms of misery or poverty or disease but the Sanskrit word dukkha is often chanted uh, is often translated as alienation or disenchantment if we were translating that word today we would translate it as uh, guilt or shame or insecurity or terror this experience that we all have in the back of our lives where no matter what we do there's a place in which we always feel inadequate in which we always feel like 
there's a front here, but behind that front, everything's okay. There's a, there's a terrible, terrible feeling that we live with, uh, that things are really, um, uh, that we're suffering. Okay. You know the feeling I'm talking about? Yeah. So the purpose of this knowledge is the total, the final, the complete, the permanent annihilation of the suffering, of the shame, of this guilt of this inadequacy, of this insecurity, of this terror uh, that we live with. You know, and we all have a story of my suffering. You know, it was because of this alcoholic parent. It was because of this disaster that happened in my relationship. It was because of this sexual abuse. It was because of this war. You hear? You know, but everyone is experiencing uh, the same terror, the same guilt, the same shame, the same fear. And 5,000 years ago, the sages were saying, yes, uh, that in a condition of ignorance, uh, this is in your face. So we want to be focusing this morning on the nature of the self, because when you're not connected with yourself, um, it's very, very scary. Can imagine going through life not connected with yourself? But that's a very, very scary experience. So uh, the work that we're doing today is, is work in which we're focusing on self-realization. Now, it's, it's interesting the difference between Buddhism and Hinduism because in Hinduism you're dealing with a cup that's full in which this is everything and in Buddhism you're dealing with a cup that's empty in which this is nothing. But they're describing the same cup. So whether we choose to call this everything or whether we choose to call this nothing, we're talking about the same this. Okay. So we're asking this question, uh, who am I, uh, to begin with? Uh, because it's always good to have a map of the territory. And we're asking, well, who am I? And we want to point out that um, it can be a source of great suffering uh, when I identify with these different aspects of my life. Um, and, it can there be, and there can be great freedom when I break the chains of identification with these aspects of my life. So if I ask, who am I? The most obvious thing is I'm Bruce. And I've always been Bruce. And what is more obvious than I'm Bruce? Uh, but maybe I hired a good-looking, intelligent, funny actor to come in and play Bruce. So you don't know if I'm really Bruce. Or maybe I've come to Hartwood and changed my name. So, um, you are not your name, okay? And, um, and your name's very arbitrary. And yet, if someone says something, oh, that Bruce, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's living in a fantasy, you get upset that your identification with your name and your identification with that character can be a source of tremendous pain. That years later, you're still rolling because your sister or your mother said something about this fragile ego of yours. So the sages say you have, you have a name, but you're not a name. Um, but that name's always changing. We're looking for something about you that's real, that isn't changing, that isn't subjective, that isn't transitory. So if I'm not my name, maybe I'm my body. And again, your body is something that's always changing. Uh, were you this, this, this amazing newborn? Uh, this magical, magical t- toddler 
this uh, uh, wild and crazy teenager, uh, this gorgeous woman in the prime of her life, or are you this wrinkled, dirty old man here of Bruce? Your body's always changing. Every seven years you have a new set of cells. So the sages say you have a body, but you're not your body. But think about the way you identify with your body. Oh my God, I, I gained three pounds. I'm feeling like a pig. I hate myself. Um, Bruce, is her behind uh, bigger? Is my behind that big? Um, <laughs> so we have a body and we identify with our bodies and it's often a source of great suffering. Uh, but, you know, you can be uh, Peter Hawken, the smartest man in the world and hardly able to move your body. So the sages say you have a body, but you're not your body. And often your identification with that body is a source of great suffering. But we're looking for something unchanging. That body's always changing. Well, maybe I'm my mind. And again, the, the mind is described not merely as a monkey and not merely as a crazy monkey, but as a, a drunken monkey. That if you had an iPod that worked like your mind, you would curse Steve Jobs and toss it. Um, but again, look at you. We identify with every thought that comes into our mind. And often it's a great, it's a source of great suffering. And none of it's necessarily real. On your, your deathbed, your mother can say, you know that nice man who lived with us all those years who you called dad? Well, <laughs> that your most clearest truth, your most obvious truth uh, that you've based your whole life on. Uh, so the sages say, you know, you have a mind, but you're not your mind. And you're foolish to constantly identify with this mind. That This is ignorance. This is a source of suffering. And again, your emotions. If you think your mind's emotions, what about this roller coaster uh, of your emotions? And think about the way we identify with this every emotion. You know, that I love to tell the story where I'd met this, this, this sage in the marketplace who was supposed to be a great saint. And he gave me all this juice, all this attention, all this love. He says, yes, he is a great saint. And I brought my friend to see him and he gave my friend all this juice. And I was somewhere in the back and I was in my self-pity. <laughs> my paranoia. And someone came from the post office with some fine Swiss chocolate and passed it around, and suddenly I'm in ecstasy. You mean my paranoia, my self-pity, my self-loathing can be bought off with a fine Swiss chocolate? It can be bought off with a, with a cheap uh, Oreo. So again, we identify with the suffering of our self-loathing, and it's fickle. In a moment, the phone rings. Oh, I'm great. Yeah, sure. And you're in that other persona. Isn't that amazing? That it's so deep and it's so painful that we're so terrified by it, and it's something, you know, it's such an abyss of anguish. And there it is. In the next moment, we distract ourselves from it. Well... If I'm not my name, I'm not my body, I'm not my mind, I'm not my emotions, maybe I'm my intellect, the ideals that I would live or die for. Here I am, the president of my Christian youth group. Um, president Bush has lectured us on abstinence, the one Christian way of birth control. 
and suddenly in the back seat of that Camaro, oh my God, I never knew there was anything this wonderful. What a fool I was, how immature, what a child. So your most cherished beliefs, you know, what do you mean the government lies to us all the time? (laughs) So your most cherished beliefs are shattered in a moment, you know. So the sages say, this is your intellect, and we identify with this. You know, I followed this guru for I don't know how many years. He promoted celibacy, and oh my God, what I found out about him, you know. So we can, this is the pillar of our life, and it shatters in a moment. But there's one thing that's real. There's one thing that never, ever changes, And that is the goddess within you. That is the God within you. That is the life and consciousness within you. From your first moment to your last moment, you are present in your experience. This mindfulness, this awareness, this consciousness, this life and consciousness are inextricably bound. To be alive is to be conscious, to be conscious is to be alive. There's this life that is living in you and through you. And this is an infinite life. Here's life right here. We're living in this ocean of life. And here's life. It's breathing life into you. Do you hear that? There's one life here. The same life. The life of the earth. The life of the infinite. It's breathing life into you. And in each breath, You are the unfolding of the creative potency of this one life, of this universal life. Do you hear that? That you're no different from that atom that's out picturing its homeostasis and taking in its experience that you're the same universal life, the same infinite cycle of creative intelligence. Gandhi called this my experiment with truth. That in each moment we are life's experiment without picturing its homeostasis. In each moment, you are the freedom of a God who became the world, a God who lives in the world through each and every one of us, every insect, every fly, every flower. That you are the cutting edge of the unfolding of the creative potency of creation. That you are the face of God. You are the face of the goddess. You are the face of life. Pat yourself on the back. You're doing a pretty good job. Can you imagine? You are the cutting edge of evolution, of the unfolding of the creative potency of the universe. Uh, An infinite is expanding as fast as it possibly can. No, you know, you are evolving, you are growing as fast as you possibly can. That's why there's never a moment's rest. So pat yourself on the back, dear goddesses, dear God. Namaste, honor to the divine within, honor to the divine within, honor to the God within. I want you to look to your left and say, oh, you're so beautiful, dear goddess. Look to your right, oh, you're so beautiful, dear goddess. Let's just begin our class with... So I have to begin with what's most important first. So let's sing to each other. I love you. 
I love you, I love you, goddess, I love you. Loving you is loving God. I love you, goddess, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you, God, I love you. Loving you is loving God. I love you, goddess, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you, God, I love you. Loving you is loving God. I love you, God, I love you. I love you, I love you, I love you, God, I love you. Loving you is loving God, I love you, God, I love you. So the way that we find this goddess within is through self-realization and we're all we're all caught up in the glamour of the spirituality. You know, we all read biography of a yogi where the whole world becomes psychedelic, you know, and you see through things and bells and whistles and saints appear. That's all spiritual glamour. We experience and we realize God through loving the clouds and loving the trees and loving the children. And just, Gandhi said there was an inherent sacredness in life. That when we were kind, when we shared kindness, when we shared caring, when we shared respect, there was sacredness in that gesture. That we have within us the ability to live truthfully, to practice. This dharma is something in which you know you're practicing dharma because you experience the sacredness of life. That your natural state is a state of gratefulness. That you know you're practicing dharma when you're in a place of gratefulness. And all these tiny little epiphanies, all these little ecstatic joys are the journey to self-realization. Uh, that we become realized, not necessarily, sometimes you'll have a, you know, a, a, a cosmic awakening, but all these tiny little epiphanies of love and joy and realization are our path to realization, our path to self-realization. Because everything we're seeking is right here, is in who you are and is in the life around you. So I invite you, uh, Osho once said, any concept you have of God is a hallucination. Any picture, any image. And to, to simply uh, uh, cultivate this state of gratefulness. This state of gratefulness. In a golden age, yogis purified their bodies and experienced micro-clairvoyance and witness the fundamental forces of creation. And they could actually see on a molecular level, and many of you are clairvoyant. There's actually, in the Theosophist, they had a school of clairvoyance. And they saw the same sort of thing. They saw the molecular level. They saw the atomic level. And on a molecular level, they saw a spiraling infinite vortex of resonance. This is from the, an image from the father of color therapy who had this micro clairvoyant 
vision, who could see this molecular level. And they saw, um, you know, the, the ancient wisdom tells us that the, the creation is sung into being. The creation is music. The creation is vibrating in, in a state of praise. And on a molecular level, um, this man Babbitt and the ancient sages could see the molecules. So let's say this is a, a picture of a molecule doing what they do, which is outpicturing a state of homeostasis and then bringing in its experience to the core. And it's and in exactly the same way that life breathed life into you and has created this, this structure of resonance, again, because you've been created by life, and so you're made of the stuff of life, you're made of uh, this music. See, we live in this ocean of life, this ultrasonic ocean of life. And our senses are, are tuned into this dimension of earth, water, fire, air, ether. Uh, but life's a higher, higher dimension. So some people tune into this microclairvoyance and are able to see life. And so, uh, so here's this higher potency of life that's at the core of every atom and molecule and cell. And as we breathe, our bodies are a musical instrument that on every level of microcosm and macrocosm are played by life. So you know how musical instruments were traditionally made out of guts and traditionally made out of hide? Uh, your body is a musical instrument that is played by life. And you know how when you stretch a guitar string, it comes into alignment with the keynotes of nature? But the reason that guitar string is able to resonate is because it comes into alignment with the C of nature, with the F, with the G7, with the forces of nature. It's aligning with the ethers that are carrying this vibration. Um, so as we breathe, the tissue on every level of microcosm and microcosm elongates. And the first elongation is called sattva guna. Guna means vortex. And it's a vortex that determines the quality. Uh, and sattva means being. So first the tissue comes into alignment with the soul force, with the universal life, with being. And then, so there's a lengthening of the tissue in alignment of this force that's radiating from the sun, the nucleus of our solar uh, system, okay? Which we call the soul force. And, and, and on, on a level, in every level of atom and molecule and cell comes into resonance and is enlivened with it. Then as we continue to, to breathe, the tissue radiates out into a solar resonance, into fire, barrels out into radiance. Can you, can you see what I'm talking about? That the tissue of your body, can you feel what I'm talking about, moves from an alignment with the soul force into radiance with the solar force, with the sun, with the fire, with the creative. Uh, with, we're inspired with each breath. We're inspired. We're respired. The spirally on every atom and molecule and cell moving in a space of inspiration, respiration. Then there's a still point where the diaphragm comes into a neutral point between heaven and earth, within and without, which we call earth, which uh, precipitates into manifestation. Then the diaphragm contracts into a lunar resonance, which moves from this 
breath of heaven to breath of earth, which we call tamas guna. So nature is playing creation. The breath of life is playing you. That in every breath, we're taken through a process of natural and cosmic attunement. That the guts and hide of this instrument, the incredibly fluid medium of the body, is brought through a process of cosmic and natural attunement. And this is the reality of air, of fire, of earth, and water, uh, and the keynotes of nature which underlie solidity, life, creativity, uh, and intelligence. So when we look at an image of the goddess Saraswati, Saraswati means uh, essence of self. Come on. Come out. Play. Here we are. No, not yet. No, I'm okay. I don't want the sound yet. I want her. Yeah. Oh, she's on the screen? Yeah. Now, will she stay? Okay. Uh, Saraswati means essence of self. That she's an icon that symbolizes the essence of yourself. And whenever you see Saraswati, the essence of yourself, she's pictured with a swan, that the swan is her vehicle. Okay? Now, the swan is considered one of the highest flying birds. And as the highest flying bird, it symbolizes the supreme principle. And in, in uh, this tradition, whenever they talk about the swan, everyone knows that the swan represents the breath. Because the word for swan is hansa, like in Paramahansa, um, as like a, a supreme accolade that we can give us to call someone a Paramahansa. Um, so the swan uh, symbolizes the supreme principle, and the word hansa, Hansa is a pun which has to do with the most fundamental mantra which is the rhythm of the breath which is going and makes a sound saham, hamsa, hamsa, saham, hamsa, okay? So the swan uh, symbolizes the breath which is the supreme principle in life. Uh, that life is carried on the breath, from your first breath to your last breath. It is the breath that carries Saraswati, the essence of self, the soul force, the animating intelligence. And your body is this resonant structure, and as we breathe in, because it's made of breath, it resonates with the breath. And it carries these keynotes of air and fire and earth and water throughout this fabric. We stop breathing and the body begins to decay immediately. It's only the presence of this breath that vitiates this body from Vishnu to pervade. So we have uh, Saraswati, the soul force, the essence of self um, carried on the uh, breath. Um, carried on the swan, the supreme principle of the breath, and she's playing the vena. And you are the vena that the goddess 
Sarasvati is playing. So do you see the beautiful, beautiful symbolism of this icon? Now, in this philosophy, in India, it's called Sanatana Dharma. Sanatana means older than time, prior to time, eternal. And Dharma, again, is a way of living in which we experience the sacredness of life and experience our divinity. That as we practice this way of life, we live in this state of gratefulness. You hear gratefulness is a molecular state, is a sattvic state, in which the molecules of your body are in this space of fullness. Um, so the name for the creator is Brahma. And Brahma means an ever-expanding breath of life. So here is Brahma. And in every breath, here is this Brahma, this universal life, this one life, this infinite life, breathing life uh, into you and unfolding its creative potency. Now, Brahma is very, very abstract. And so the Shakti, the power, the manifest power in nature of Brahma is in the feminine aspect. Uh, And we call this feminine aspect, Sarasvati is one of the names of this feminine aspect. She is a Shakti. She is the power. So now we're going to be beginning our um, exercises in mantra yoga by uh, invoking. And again, the way that we invoke the goddess is she symbolizes a level of consciousness. So we're using this psychoactive language, Sanskrit, to exalt our consciousness because the basic rule of creation is what your mind dwells upon you become. So as you uh, invoke this level of consciousness, you invoke your own innate divinity and you cultivate your own innate divinity. So I have been rapping for quite a while. So let's get up and breathe and stretch a little bit and then we will um, uh, begin to chant the Sarasvati invocation. I hope this is useful for you. I'm sure some of you will run away and never come back. But that's the price of being this far. Uh oh. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So please, if I can demystify any of this for you, just call on me to do it. You know, because none of this is mysterious. It is our lives that we're entitled to live in this truth. No pie in the sky, just simple gratefulness. And please, if you'd rather chant standing up or chant dancing, um, there's no points for sitting uh, in half lotus or no lotus. So just whatever's comfortable. You are gods and goddesses creating this world. And whatever it takes to, for you to be comfortable in your body, comfortable in your world, uh, you are the author of your life. So, yes. <clears throat> So we're going to be chanting um, uh, 
in Sanskrit. Sanskrit is called the perfected language. Um, and the sounds that can be uttered in Sanskrit are the sounds that humans are capable of. When you learn Sanskrit, you learn to use every portion of your uh, larynx and throat and uh, palate and lips. And you learn to, to make the spectrum of sound that, that humanity is capable of making. That there's some 50-some letters in the Sanskrit um, language and then there's a spectrum around each letter. Um, and, it's, um, and the Sanskrit grammar is the basis of all grammars uh, because, again, it's a, a language of a reveal of a God realm that was given to us. Originally, the word Brahman meant the act of marshalling the forces of creation to manifest your will. You hear that? It wasn't a priest cast. It was the actual act of marshalling the forces of nature. And that's what we're doing. We're marshalling the forces of nature to manifest our divinity, to cultivate our divinity, to cultivate this sattvic state on a molecular level where we experience this great fullness because each atom of our body is a well of being. And when we lose touch with being, when we lose touch with life, we're at a great loss. We feel a great inadequacy. We feel a great shame and terror. We look everywhere because of the ontological terror, because we've lost our connection with being. We know there's something terribly, terribly wrong. You hear that? And yet it's... And this state of of sattvic state, which is our natural state, is described as a superconscious state because we're not in fear, we're not in terror, we're not rolling in the past, obsessing on our pain, and we're not in the future. We're simply in the liberation of the present, the liberating present, the eternal present, undying, un, uh, unborn, undying, everywhere, always, eternal, ever and ever and ever and ever. That there's one life living through us and there's one presence in each of us. It's the same goddess, the same presence, the same life in each of us. Unborn, undying, everywhere, always, eternal, as your natural state. There's absolutely nothing you have to change, nothing you have to do. You're right here, right now. Is that amazing? Yes, you are so amazing. We are so low. So in this vision, God did not create the world. I always say she was like a Jewish mother. She threw herself into the world and she's become each one of us. <laughs> you know how mothers love our children? We give themselves every we give them everything. Will you embody this fundamental truth of creation? Of how deeply you love this creation. That here you are living in each one of us. And you're, totally perfect as a unique your first breath places you in the infinite and, and, and you are each a just a unique facet of this infinite infinite fount of life fount of consciousness so our mantra uh, <clears throat> om and again om is I, I can't even begin to say what om is it's beyond words in the same way that the tiniest bit of DNA has within it the resonance and intelligence to create this amazing body, right? The tiniest bit of DNA. Uh, 
Om has within it the resonance and intelligence, the mystery to create infinite universes. So when we chant Om, we become part of the Holy Word. Again, you are a microcosm of creation. Your Word is a microcosm of the Holy Word. Om is its Holy Word. And then I am the Shakti of Om, the feminine aspect of, of Om. So I am is, is the feminine equivalent of Om, but even more material, more powerful. And then we'll go Shrim, Harim, and then Saraswati, honoring this gift of life, this gift of creative intelligence, 